Hello and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. A few months ago, the University of Alabama won the college football playoff. All 131 players can call themselves champions because they are all united as teammates. Lead teacher Jeff Norris finishes the Holy Week series, United in Christ, with this sermon entitled, United in Christ, which covers various texts including Romans chapter 5 verse 12 to chapter 6 verse 11. For more more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. To orient us to where we're headed this morning, I'll start us here by saying we are intrigued by mystery. The mysterious draws us in, it piques our interest, it perplexes us, it, it does something to us. I think about it as a as a kid in elementary school, I basically learned to read on the Hardy Boys books. Those are the books that I read almost every single night. Uh, and I was always so um, excited about what they were about to discover, what mystery they were that was about to unfold as these Hardy Boy brothers would move into one mystery to another and solve it. I can remember going to bed, both excited and terrified, many nights. Then there was this show that I grew up with as well, the original Unsolved Mystery Show, hosted by the late, great Robert Stack, whose voice was both a a, a beautiful combination of commanding and terrifying. I'd watch these shows, and and the hair would stand up on my arms, and I'd begin to wonder if the person that they're profiling in the in the show that night was standing outside my door and I'd go close my curtains because I'd be fearful, but I'd also be so intrigued by the mystery. We're drawn in by mystery, right? JFK, Area 51, UFOs, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster. We'll make up things mysterious just so that we can be intrigued by them. If I just offended anyone who believes in the Loch Ness Monster, I apologize. But we are drawn in by the mysterious. Here's the thing about a mystery, though. A mystery is most gratifying when it's solved or when it's revealed or when it's explained. Otherwise, it feels incomplete. So when a mystery is revealed, explained, we rejoice. There's a sense of satisfaction that comes with that. And here's why. It's because the truth has been revealed. There's... there's, a really important way that I wanna encourage you to look at the Bible, if you aren't already. I wanna encourage you to look at the Bible from beginning to end, from Genesis to Revelation, as a story. Not a made-up story, but a real story with real people, with real circumstances, with real events, all under the sovereign rule and purposing of a real God. And what this story is, according to New Testament writers, they use this language when talking about this story. They say this, that it is an unfolding mystery, and that it's a mystery that has now been revealed through Christ. So what is the good news of Easter? What is the good news that we celebrate? I'll put it to you this way. The good news of Easter is that the mystery of the ages has been once and for all and finally revealed. 
Think about some of the language of scripture that I'm referring to. If you go back to the passage that we were in last week on Palm Sunday as Caleb led us through it, we go back to Ephesians chapter one. This is some of what we read. It says this, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, and here it is, making known to us the mystery of his will. We'll come back to this verse later on to see what the next half of the verse says, but this is what Paul is talking about is is being revealed through Jesus. He devotes almost the entire of what we know, chapter three of Ephesians, almost the entire chapter is devoted to this mystery of the gospel being revealed. In 1 Peter chapter one, Peter talks about this and he says, the apostle says, uh, look, the prophets of old that you see all these writings in your Old Testament from the prophets, they even longed to look into this mystery, to know how was this going to come to be. For them, it was a bit of like uh, looking through frosted glass. They could kind of see on the other side, but it wasn't very clear. And they longed to look into this mystery. But if that weren't enough, Peter says this, even the angels... We often think that angels know everything that God does. They don't. They're created beings just like we are. In fact, they were created to serve mankind. And it says that the angels even long to look into the mystery of how this would be revealed. And then there's Romans chapter 16. Paul's written uh, perhaps his most thorough letter in terms of doctrine and theology. And at the very end of this letter, he says this, now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through prophetic writings has been uh, known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God. So what is the good news of Easter? The good news of Easter is that the mystery of ages past has been revealed. But here's the key that I want to enter into today. This revelation of the mystery of salvation, of the mystery of the good news of Jesus, is really centered around one word. And it's not the word that you expect me to say on Easter morning. Yes, I will absolutely talk about the resurrection. But that's not the word. The word that this entire revelation of the mystery of the gospel is centered around is the word union. Union. You're like, what, workers union? What are you talking about, Jeff? No, union with Christ. Because the resurrection, as critical, of course, that it is, it's to what end? Why did Jesus rise from the, dead, from the grave? Why did Jesus defeat death? It was for the reason to unite his creation, mankind, back unto himself. To unite him with his people and us with him. To understand this, hopefully clearly, we have to go back to the beginning of the story. Go back all the way to Genesis 1. We begin to understand in Genesis 1 that God is creating all things, 
And he created all things to be in perfect union with him, that all of what he has created is to flourish unhindered, reflecting his glory. We, mankind, is the pinnacle of his creation. We are the pinnacle of his creation made in his image, and so we are to reflect him in his glory in every way, and we are made to flourish in every way, and that flourishing is experienced most through our union with God, so we are created in perfect unity with him. There is unhindered fellowship, union, and communion with God at the beginning, But it only lasted for a time. You might know the story. Even if you didn't grow up in or around church, you know kind of what we teach and what the Bible teaches, that that was what the purpose of creation was, is that God would have all of this created for his glory and that mankind would be the pinnacle of that to flourish in his presence in perfect unity with him. But here's what happened. Genesis 3. Adam rebelled. And the reason I say Adam is this, is because even though Eve was the one who took the fruit and ate of it first and then gave it to Adam, God held Adam responsible. And here's why. He had given, in Genesis 2, he had given the command to Adam. And Adam was the one that he held responsible. So throughout the rest of the teaching of the scriptures, we get this continual teaching of that we are a people descended from Adam in his nature. So here's what happens. There's, there's something really important uh, to understand in terms of how the Bible teaches the state of mankind in response in relation to God. And it can be really hard for Western American Christians to really get this because we are hyper-individualized. And that's okay in the sense of that salvation is an individual thing. We each have to believe upon Christ and his life, death, and resurrection in our place. However, the Bible speaks most often in big picture language of things being done with representatives, corporately. And our first representative, the one who represents us before God, is Adam. Uh, we, We often talk about this. What we learn in the scriptures is that all mankind, from the moment that Adam sinned and all of his lineage after him, we are all born with the residue, if you will, of Adam. We're all born with the sin nature. We are all born into sin. He is our representative. He's the one in whom we stand, if you will. It's important to understand that sin is not something that we do Sin is who we are. It's our nature. Because here's what Adam did. Here's what Adam and Eve did. They said, I hear your story, God, of what you've created. I see what you've done here. I see that you've created us for your glory and to have communion and union with you, unhindered fellowship with you. I see that it's in that that we are to flourish. But I also see that there might be something out there that's better for me. And that's why the temptation of the serpent was so significant, because that's exactly what the serpent is playing into. He's saying, but what about this? Do you think you could know exactly what God knows? This is a better alternative than what God has set up. And so the expression of man's heart from Adam into every single one of us is that we are born with the Adamic residue of rebellion to say, I see the story you've written, but I want my story. I see your glory, but I want my glory. I see what you've set up, but I want to do it differently. And so the expression of every single one of us out of a heart 
that has the residue of Adam in it is that we are a rebellious people. So here's what I'm getting at. To understand why it's so important that we have the opportunity to be united to Christ, we first have to understand that every single one of us are by nature united to Adam. He's our representative. All right, good Easter sermon, let's pray. Actually, that's not a good Easter sermon. If I, if I stopped there, that would be the worst Easter sermon ever. But I wanna press something in with you because it's so very important. You have to understand, it's so important for us to understand the bad news if we're going to glory and revel in the good news. If it's not weighed, if what Jesus has done for us is not weighed against bad news, then it's just news. I could walk up to you, and if you don't understand that we are all in our nature united to Adam, that he's our head, that he's our representative, and I just walk up to you and say, hey, Jesus died for you and rose from the dead, you go, okay, great. Uh, where's the coffee? It's not gonna mean anything to you, but when we begin to understand that a holy God who is just and who is righteous, who made us for his glory, but because of his holiness cannot be associated with sin, has pronounced upon Adam the curse of sin and we inherit that. That we are under the curse of sin and that when God looks at us, that's what he sees. But... Here's the good news. The good news is that what has been made available to us is another way. And in the same way that there is this representative Adam that we are by nature united to, there's an opportunity for us to be united to a true and better Adam. And his name is Jesus. The scriptures in the New Testament actually talk about Jesus as this second Adam. This one who has come in the flesh to do what the first Adam failed miserably at. And in the ways in which the first Adam is our representative, now we have a new representative. One who has now come and has lived the standard that Adam couldn't live. God had created Adam and Eve to live in perfect unity with him, but he rebelled, therefore we rebelled. But there's this new Adam, this second Adam, who has come and achieved the standard of perfection in our place, the life that we could never live, he has lived on our behalf. Theoretically, there's two ways to get right with God, if you wanna put it that way. One is be perfect, not just in action, word, and deed, but at the very purity of the heart. So, bad news. Ain't gonna happen for any of us. But what if there's one who can be a representative, just like Adam was our representative, who could come and be for us what we could never be? And then not only that, because God is a just and holy God, he has to be true to his character, so therefore he must punish sin. And so if you read in, in Genesis 3, immediately upon sin coming into the world, what does God do? He pronounces a curse upon not just man, but all of creation. But what if there's one who has come who's not only lived the life that we couldn't live, but takes the curse that we deserve for us, being the perfect once and final and for all sacrifice? But even still, even if that happened, and it did through Christ, but there's still something unresolved. The greatest enemy of humanity is ultimately death because when Adam sinned, death came into the world, both physically and spiritually. 
that we lost our unity with God. We lost our union with him. We lost our fellowship with him. We lost our purpose with him. And so what if there's one who actually conquers the penalty of sin, death itself, for us so that even though physical death still exists, through Jesus we have victory over it. We, we have available to us, friends, a new Adam, a true and better Adam who has come to be united to him. The scriptures say it this way. This is, our, this is our verse this morning that is just so incredibly important. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This is the whole crux of the gospel is that God is saying through Jesus, new union is available. That the death he died becomes your death to sin. And the resurrection he accomplished becomes your resurrection over sin. You can think of it this way. When, if you ask the question, so, okay, help me understand just as simply as I can maybe put it. What, what do you mean? He's talking about this being united with Christ. Can you help me understand just in layman terms what that is, Jeff? Here's how I would explain it. Every, what it means is this. Everything, everything, don't miss this. Everything that is Jesus's becomes ours. Everything. So it means that his perfect obedient life through faith in him becomes our perfect obedient life. We're not perfect and obedient, but it becomes ours as if it were ours. His death becomes our death. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I now live by faith in the Son of God, Galatians 2.20. His death becomes my death. His resurrection becomes my resurrection. His ascension into the holy of holies in the heavenlies becomes my ascension into the heavenlies, into the holy of holies. And his inheritance Everything that is his as the beloved son of God who stands before God and the father says, well done, uh, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased means that now through him, through being united to him, all of that is ours so that we stand before God and God says to us, well done, my son, my daughter in whom I am well pleased. Everything that is Jesus's becomes ours. Just like Adam, everything that was Adam's in his nature became ours. New union. To be united by faith in Christ, everything that is his becomes ours. Here's a really cool way to think about it. I love the language of Colossians chapter three, verses one through three. It starts this way. It says, since then you have been raised with Christ. All right, did you catch that? I just said his resurrection becomes our resurrection. So since then, you have been raised with Christ through faith in him. His resurrection, your resurrection. Set your heart on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. Set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. And then listen to this language. I love it. For you have died. Your, your union with Adam is dead. If your faith is in Jesus, you have died. And here's the truth now. And your life is now hidden with Christ in God. I love that language. 
Think about that, how that's playing off even Genesis 3. Because when Adam sinned and everything fell apart and all of creation crumbled with Adam, where did Adam go? God goes to look for him in the garden. Now, he doesn't have to look. He's doing it just to call them out. And, but God's looking for him in the garden. He says, where are you? And where were they? They were hiding. But there's a new hiddenness, if you will, for us. In that Adam hid in the shame of his sin, but now through Jesus, we get to hide in the righteousness of Christ. So think of, about, think of it this way. You think about being hidden in Christ. Think of it like this. When I was in fifth grade, I was at Camp Briarwood, just south of Birmingham. They had this sprawling land around this lake. This is my second year to go to Camp Briarwood. The first year, I got caught off guard by what happened at the end of the week. Second year, me and my friends, we were not gonna be caught off guard. What happened would never fly today, but in the 80s, we didn't care. And here's what happens. At the end of the week of Camp Briarwood, each week back then, you'd have a, a counselor camper hunt, which meant this. Every camper, all 200 of us, however many of it there were, every camper could go anywhere they wanted to on the property and hide. Sounds incredibly safe. <laughs> and this is at night. It was dark, and the counselors had one hour to find as many campers as they could. So the first year, when I was in fourth grade that we were there, somehow in all of the happenings of the week, me and my buddies, uh, we, had forgot, we had not realized that this was gonna be happening at the, week, at the end of the week. We had not scoped out the land, and so we panicked in the moment, and we hid under a bus, and we were found in like two minutes. <laughs> but this year, we were older, we were wiser, and from the moment we got there, we were scoping out the landscape. We brought all black clothing with us. We brought black face, face paint with us. We were not gonna be found. I brought a black toboggan because my hair was white. My nickname was Q-Tip. They could see me in the dark. It's like I had a light on my head, but I, I covered it up. They were not gonna find us. So here's what we scoped out. Here's what we found. We actually, the, the place that we determined this is the very best place for us to hide was actually in the middle of everything. It was in between the two of the, the dorms, if you will, the, the cabins where people stayed. But here's why it was so good. It was this type of bush called an Eliagnus bush. I didn't know that at the time. I was not some little horticulture phenom in fifth grade, but I, I've looked it up since then. And it was this Ellie Agnes bush that we hid in. And the way these bushes work is that they're incredibly thick on the outside, but if you crawl up under them, it's really open inside to where it feels almost like a fort. And so we said, that's the spot. So that's where we hid, three of us in the tree. We crawled up in there, we had all our black on, and counselor after counselor walked right by us and never saw us. Why? We were there, but we were hidden. We were hidden in this thick tree. I want you to think about that as a metaphor for what it means to be hidden in Christ. Imagine my fist represents me. 
And it represents me in my union with Adam. The, the residue, the nature of Adam that I'm born into. And so the curse of sin is upon me. And imagine my eyes are the eyes of God. And so as I look at, the, at me, from the eyes of God, one who is made in his image, again, as a holy and righteous God, what do I see? I see Adam. I see the curse of sin. I see rebellion. Because I'm united to Adam. But watch this. Imagine my hand represents being united to Jesus. In Colossians 3.3, 3, for you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So if you could see what I see right now through my eyes as if they were the eyes of the Father, I don't see my fist. I, I see my hand covering the fist. I see Jesus. I'm there. I haven't gone anywhere, but I have a new covering. I have a new representative. I'm united now to the true and better Adam who finished the work for me. And so now when God looks at me, he sees, he sees the obedience of Jesus. He sees the death for the curse of sin of Jesus. He sees the resurrection power over the grave of Jesus. He sees everything that is Jesus's is now mine as if it were my own. And he rejoices. Jesus hung on that tree and conquered sin and death and hell so that you and I could be united to him. Yes, the resurrection, celebrate it. We will celebrate the resurrection for all of eternity and it will never get old, but to what end? It's so that God who created us to be in union with him, that we would be united to him again. Oftentimes we talk about the resurrection and we say things like, uh, inappropriately so, we say Jesus came and lived and died and resurrected so that we would be forgiven of our sins. And yes, and amen, and we'll sing about that for all of eternity. But I want you to think about that incredible reality is just an amazing salad at the beginning of a five-course meal. Because it's not just that we get forgiven, because many of us go, I'm forgiven, but then we just feel tolerated. I'm forgiven, but he just, he just kind of puts up with me. No, no, no. You are in Christ. You're not only forgiven, you are adored. He sees Jesus if your faith is in him because you are united to Christ. It's a glorious reality. And that's the mystery. That's the mystery that was revealed. These prophets and angels are longing to look into the reality and go, how is this all going to come to fruition? And this is partly why the apostles were so confused when Jesus shows up. Because again, they're thinking, hey, um, I'm not so sure about what all is going on in the spiritual realm. I just know that we need a king who will deliver us from Rome. And God says, I got something so much better than that. And it kind of mystifies you right now, but you're going to be blown away at what I'm going to do through the death and resurrection of my son. So we go back to that verse in Ephesians that started this way. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. That's what we read earlier. Listen to what follows. 
according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And here it is. Here's the mystery revealed. To unite all things to him. In him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's why. To unite us back to him for all of eternity. But there's one more thing that I have to mention. We have to understand that in our nature, we're united to Adam. We have to understand that through the gospel, the mystery of the gospel, we are now united through faith in Jesus, united to Christ. But there's a third reality, and it's that there's union with the body of Christ, the church. That yes, in our union with him, we're united to one another. All believers united together. This is what Jesus is talking about in John 17, that we looked at this just a few weeks ago. This is what, what he said when he's praying to God on the night before he was crucified, and he's praying for us. He's praying for those who would believe for ages to come, and he says this, for the glory that you have given me, talking to the Father, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. In a year that has seen the church, not just the world out there, but even the church splintered and fractioned and divided, we have to be reminded of the reality that if we are united by faith in Christ, then that means that there's also horizontal implication to the reality that we're united to one another. And the way that families work, we're brothers and sisters in Christ, if you believe in Jesus, and the way that families work, even families that know nothing of Jesus, even broken families, if they work the way that we hope they work, the reality is this. Hey, as my brother, as my sister, you're probably going to annoy me. You're probably going to do some things that I don't agree with. You're going to disappoint me, and I'm going to disappoint you. But at the end of the day, you're family. And I'm going to fight for you, and I am with you, and I'm going to believe the best in you, and I will go to the greatest lengths to help you flourish as my brother and is my sister. And that same thing is the reality times a hundred for brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what Jesus was getting at at a certain level when he said, if you come unto me, you gotta hate your mother and your father and come to me and people are going, what? All he's saying is this, the kingdom of God, the union that we have with Jesus is so much more infinitely valuable than even the relationships that you have here on earth with your family members, that the family of God is of preeminent importance, that we would understand that in comparison to the love that we have for earthly fathers and mothers would pale in comparison to the love that we have for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. What if we as the church and all of our little disagreements and all of our little spats and all of our inability to believe the best in one another, what if we fought for each other like that? Because we understand what the union of Christ means even in our relationships. Paul says it this way in Romans chapter eight. He says, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we 
are children of God. So this union with Christ brings us into a family and it gives us the spirit of adoption. Adoption is such an amazing metaphor for what God has done for us through Christ. It reminds me of our story, mine and Rachel's story with our family. Many of you know this, I've shared this story many times, but I wanna keep sharing it because it's so important and it means so much to me. And it helps me see the love of the Father and what he's done for us. Many of you know that our son, our oldest Samuel, that we adopted him from Ukraine. By the way, I asked if I could share this story. He said yes, I'll probably pay him later. Um, That's probably the first thing he's heard in this whole sermon. Dad's gonna pay me, I'm just joking. Uh, But I asked him and he said, yeah, you can share that. When we went to adopt Samuel in 2005, it's a long process, months and months and months, years of longing to be parents, but months and months of paperwork and saving money, raising money to make this a reality. We finally board a plane on October 31st of 2005. We spend the whole month of November in country there. We end up meeting Samuel and we were just in love from the moment we saw him. But he didn't know who we were. All he knows is that two adults start showing up every day at the orphanage for a couple hours to play with him. And it became pretty clear, became pretty clear uh, early on that he was attracted to me not because he saw me for what I wanted him to see. He didn't see me as this guy who was showing up to bring him into a family and to be his daddy. Here's what he saw. There's some toys up on the shelf that I can't reach. And that guy's really tall. I bet he'll get them for me. So that became our routine. This was a little playroom in the orphanage there that apparently there were some toys that the caretakers just never brought down. And so when I came around, he would go straight to the shelf and he would say in Russian, that, that, that. And I'd get it for him and we'd play with it together. After a couple of weeks of this, I began to feel more and more, I I want him to see me for who I am. I don't wanna, I I want him to see me more than just that. I want him to see that I'm I'm the one who came to, to bring him into the family. I'm the one that came to lavish love upon him like he's never known. I'm the one that, that came to, to, to bring him into this reality to make him mine. I can remember this one day where he, he grabs my hand and he had not been super affectionate up to this point. And so when his little hand grabs mine, my heart leaps and I look down at him and he looks up at me and I think maybe this is the moment where a connection is being made and he starts leading me through uh, the playroom and I'm thinking, this is it, this is it. And he just leads me to a new shelf. <laughs> and he says that, that, that. And I can remember feeling that I just wanted, and there was a language barrier. He didn't understand uh, us, and we didn't understand him. And I just wanted to sit him on my knee and just say, do you not realize why I came? Do you not understand the lengths to which I have gone to come here and to be more than a toy fetcher, but to be your father? 
to bring you in, to bring you into a family, to make you mine, to unite you with us. Do you not see that? There is so much more than what you think I am. And I just think in that moment and since then, I thought, does God ever do that? Does God ever look at us? And he goes, hey, look, I'm not your cosmic toy fetcher. I'm not your genie in a bottle to rub whenever you want something. I'm the one. Do you not understand the links that I have gone to to make you mine, to unite myself with you, the very reason why you were created? Do you not see it? I'm not just the man upstairs. I'm the loving God of creation who came in human flesh, lived the life that you should have lived and never could, died the death that should have been yours, and defeated the penalty of death, and you don't see it. Would you see who I am? I'm your father, so that you would cry out to me through union with Christ, Daddy, Abba, Father, I'm your son. I'm your daughter. That's the gospel. That's why Jesus rose from the dead to make us his through union with him. And the rest of the story is this. Samuel's sitting right over there and he started not long thereafter to see. He started seeing me as daddy. And for 15 years, he's my son. From a spiritual sense, do you see? Do you see who God is? Do you see him as your father? Who went to unthinkable, unimaginable lengths to make you his through this mysterious but glorious union with Christ. Made possible only through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. There is no better news. It's the story of Easter. Father, would you press this good news deep into our hearts and would you give us eyes to see who you are? That we would see through the union that we have in Christ, through faith in his finished work, that what we have is what we were created for. And that's you. We have you, we have intimacy with you, we have union with you, we have unhindered fellowship with you. We are redeemed sons and daughters of God most high. Thank you. We give you praise and glory in Jesus' name, amen. This year, I don't have to tell you, this year's been a hard year. It's been a year that has been marked with a lot of searching for many of us. We've been united in a sense, to keep using that word. We've been united in our searching. We've been united in our sorrow. But through the grace and the loving kindness of our Lord, through union with Christ, we're reminded this morning that for every single one of us, there's a place at the table, a place to belong in the family of God. 
you've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.